0: Hi, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And this week, Lectures in History brings you a class about weapons technology development during the American Revolution. Did you know that the first rifle regiment in American history was created by Congress in 1775? Learn more in this episode with Wright State University professor Paul Lockhart. Now hang tight. Class starts right after this. Well folks, welcome to um, uh, this today's installment of History of the Gun, uh, History 3100, uh, where we're gonna be talking about firearms uh, in the west to 1800, a technological development of firearms to 1800, uh, and the, specifically the case of the American Revolution. Um, this, I'm, I'm Paul Douglas Lockhart, I'm a professor of history here at Wright State University, uh, so let's get started. Um, Today I want to, since we've been focusing so far in in this course on the uh, development of small arms in particular, and a parallel development between small arms technology um, and the the changing art of war. The two things go very much hand in hand as we've seen, um, and in particular with small arms that development is kind of complicated, as we've seen with artillery. Uh, the benefits of artillery are demonstrated very early on. They're immediately obvious. Artillery can knock down castles, right? And so artillery becomes part of the Western way of war uh, before the late Middle Ages are over. But with small arms, with individually held firearms, that case is not so easily made. It's not obvious that small arms have a real purpose, something that is worth the investment in time and resources and training. Um, And in many ways, as we've already seen, the the English longbow, for example, a simpler technology, is more effective, at least theoretically. Um, But that begins to change, of course, as we get into the 16th century and the beginning of what we call the early modern era. Um, Today we're going to look at the uh, and one particular aspect of small arms development uh, that, um, that we see uh, in, in the 18th century, especially focused on the American Revolution, um, which is the, uh, uh, the introduction of, of rifles, as opposed to muskets, we've talked in, in detail about that, um, in, in, into combat and why they're not immediately effective. And there's, I'm, I'm addressing this special topic for a couple of reasons. One of them is a common theme throughout the history of firearms technology and through weapons technology in general. Uh, Just because something is advanced and technologically better doesn't mean it's better suited to the application it's designed for. Uh, In particular with firearms technologies, older more, in some cases more reliable, cheaper technologies are actually more effective in the context that they're developed in uh, than than, than newer technologies. That's certainly the case where it comes for example to rifles versus muskets, so that's one reason to look at this. Uh, Another reason is the role that this plays in American history, Um, in particular the way that Americans tend to interpret the American Revolution. The American Revolution, of course, is an iconic moment in American history. It's the founding moment, right? Uh, It is uh, also a key element of what we might call historical mythology which is not the same thing as history, of course. Historical mythology is informed by history and is based on history, um, but it is instead it consists of the stories that we tell ourselves uh, about how we came to be, and about what's special about us, and what our place in the world is, what our place in the future is. Uh, and American historical t- uh, mythology um, focuses on especially some key elements in, in the American story, um, but very often departs from I guess I might say a factual interpretation of of what actually happens. And with the American Revolution, we see this again and again. The whole reason that I wrote a book uh, that I wrote on on Bunker Hill uh, a few years ago, The Whites of Their Eyes, uh, was because Bunker Hill had become, or rather our story about Bunker Hill had become distorted because the distorted version fit better into the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, But this also influences the... um, um, the, uh, uh, the history of military technology. Um, where it comes to American historical mythology, you may well have heard of the term American exceptionalism. Of course there's many forms of American exceptionalism. Uh, where it comes to the study of American history, we see American exceptionalism very present especially in the history of war. Because war, of course, is tied up with patriotic sentiment and, and nationalistic feelings. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, our interpretation of war very often is you know, tweaked so that it fits within uh, American notions of, of what makes us special. Um, and of course, the American Revolution is, is, is fits into that perfectly, it's fodder for, for American exceptionalist ideas. Um, it's an underdog story, right? I mean, these, the uh, um, the colonies, uh, which are, you know, relatively undeveloped uh, and, and certainly small compared to the, the mass of the British Empire, uh, nonetheless succeed against what we like to think is the greatest empire in the history of the world, possibly, certainly the greatest power in, in, in Europe at that point. Um, and so the interpretation of how do we actually manage to do that is very, has been very often based, especially since the early well, the early 1800s, on, on the notion that Americans have unique martial abilities, unique martial virtues that no other, uh, no other nation in the world has. Right? Um, that um, this is something that we see emerging as early as the 1820s, as Americans are reflecting back on the revolution after about a half a century and trying to make sense of what they've accomplished. Uh, and so the notion that Americans win the revolution because they're born soldiers, because they're born marksmen, because they're hardy frontiersmen, that's a, a notion that really comes, uh, comes across in uh, these early interpretations of the revolution. And, and that notion, oddly enough, has, has been, well, it's been, uh, it's been sustained, uh, including by academic historians, you know, the, the notion that uh, somehow we're better than the British. And, and you see this reflected in, even, in, uh, um, even in documentaries, recent documentaries about the Revolution. Uh, the British are simultaneously, the British have simultaneously the best army in the world and the worst led army in the world, right? I mean, think about the way the, the British are portrayed, for example, in uh, what I like to call my favorite Mel Gibson documentary, The Patriot, um, that the, uh, the British, while well, they have a great army, are led by these, led by generals who are, such, who are so foppish and so uh, uh, incapable of seeing American virtues, that they deliberately make stupid decisions just to show how contemptuous of Americans they are. Um, This is a common theme, uh, even today, in in American revolutionary historiography. And what that translates to when we're talking about an interpretation of the American Revolution is the notion that The British have an old-fashioned European army. It's hide-bound, it's tradition-bound, it's fighting in ways that maybe made sense in Europe, and even in Europe, the British tactics seem kind of silly. Um, But they're fighting against Americans who are not only fighting in their home ground, but they're fighting in a place that's much different than Europe, right? Unlike Europe, ostensibly, I know this sounds hyperbolic, but this is how many of the interpretations sound, unlike in Europe, America has forests, and. Hills. You know, apparently these things don't exist in Europe, um, and Br- the British are completely baffled when they get to North America and they encounter a topography that is not somewhat look, you know, like a golf course perhaps. Um, so uh, the British use unimaginative traditional tactics, but the Americans, who are all frontiersmen, their uh, martial skills honed by decades or over a century of fighting with Native Americans. And, and learning things like taking cover, you know, and, and, and using the terrain to their advantage. So a uh, less rigid American army using superior weapons, namely the rifle, um, and clever tactics uh, are able to beat the British. And of course this, the re- actual story is, uh, is nowhere near that, uh, uh, nowhere near that simple that the actual story deviates considerably away from that. Now, first of all, I'm going to back up to look at how um, military technology and tactics of the age, um, how they they work together. Um, Now, we've already been looking at in our our History of the Gun class, uh, how firearms go from being a novelty uh, to being something that clearly has some significant return on investment. As we saw, the the key things that make this possible, first of all, the introduction of um, uh, the matchlock ignition system, which makes muskets and arquebuses a viable uh, individual weapon, Um, and then on top of that, the Spanish experimentation during the so-called Habsburg-Valois Wars in Italy, at the very beginning of the 16th century, which showed that individually muskets and arquebuses were not particularly effective weapons, except when you employed them in mass, except when you employed them in really, really large numbers and in a coordinated fashion. And so it's pretty clear by the middle of the 16th century that the musket, which will eventually eclipse the arquebus, which we saw is really just a small musket, uh, as the musket is there to stay. The musket provides the ability of breaking up the cohesion of enemy units at a distance before you close physically with them. But as we also saw, it was generally argued, one of the lessons derived from the wars of the 16th century, that muskets couldn't do it on their own, no matter how well trained they were. They need troops who can defend the musketeers in, when it comes to close combat, and who also can provide that offensive push. Right? That, that allows the, um, uh, allows the, uh, the, uh, uh, your own formations to roll over the enemy. And hence we have this coordination of pike and musket. Um, and, and the beginnings of you know, the transition of the individual fighting man from warrior to soldier, from an individually, um, um, individually trained person who is trained to fight on his own, to a, a man who is trained to fight as a cog in a machine, as part of a unit, um, and and that's you know where we are in the, uh, uh, in, the uh, in the 16th and early 17th centuries. And the reintroduction of drill, of the notion of being able of of, of using regular practice to coordinate the individual soldiers with the manipulation of their individual weapons and to uh, move and to change formation in large groups, makes the coordination. Not only of pike and musket possible, uh, but the employment of large units of large uh, uh, large formations that can change formation as the situation requires. Remember the tercio, the Spanish the really blocky uh, kind of Spanish infantry formation, which isn't designed to change uh, uh, to, to change its its shape uh, in, in, during the course of battles, replaced by military formations, again, we're talking here specifically about infantry, about foot troops with, with individual weapons, and, and including, including small arms, um, That uh, units that are designed to be able to move from a block to a line or to face to the right or to the left quickly to accommodate changes in the flow of battle. So by the time we get to the 18th century, uh, we have uh, not only tactics that have evolved to the point that uh, true tactical flexibility is possible, you know, through the regular application of drill, um, through the you know the conversion really of of, uh, of part-time mercenaries to full-time soldiers, career soldiers, um, but also the. Um, uh, the, the military technology, of course, of the age had uh, had already uh, had changed significantly by the time we get to the uh, uh, by the time we get to the 18th well, actually, the late 17th century, early 18th century. Um, so, as that happens, uh, as the rate of fire increases, remember, for the matchlock musket, we're talking about one round a minute. Uh, for flintlock muskets, a good practical figure is about three rounds per minute. As I I pointed out before to this class, that doesn't sound like much, but it's an effective tripling of the rate of fire. Uh, It's still three times as much lead that you can send down the field towards your target as was possible before. So with a higher rate of fire, uh, it's possible to elongate your infantry units so you have more muskets firing at once which has all sorts of implications for battle. It means the battlefield physically is going to take up much more room. The battlescape, if you will, is going to be much larger in the 18th century than it was in the 17th century. And battles will and it'll present all sorts of other challenges, including battlefield communications will, will become far more complicated. Um, and once you have the elimination of Pike, once it's no longer necessary to have Pikemen, This gives you even more flexibility. You don't have to worry about coordinating two different types of infantry together. You've got one. You've got a universal soldier who carries a musket and a bayonet. So here we have the beginnings of linear tactics at the end of the uh, end of the 18th century. So what do I mean when I say linear tactics? I mean if you've seen any movie on the American Revolution, seen any movie that involves you know, warfare between 1600 and, let's say, Waterloo, or for that matter, the American Civil War, you've already seen them, okay? There, there are many things, in fact, I, much as I joke about uh, Mel um, uh, uh, Gibson's The Patriot, uh, there's some really good illustrations of how linear warfare works uh, in, uh, in, in that film, probably some of the best in, uh, in, in the history of Hollywood, I think. Um, now, in order to have um, infantry, which is the vast bulk of your army, capable of fighting in, um, in, in long lines, relatively shallow formations, there's a few preconditions that are necessary first, which we've, we've briefly seen at least. Um, first of all, they have to have the kind of training that allows them uh, to be able to change formation very, very quickly. And the only way of getting that is drill, which becomes really the, the most important part I think of a soldier's training as that regular, repetitive, hour after hour exercise of memorizing individual movements and also learning to respond to your commander's commands without thinking. And the soldiers effectively are trained to become automatons. Um, That allows the, that, that makes possible tex, uh, tactical flexibility. Also, a concept we talk about, talked about before in this class, that of fire discipline, of not firing until your officers, who presumably know better when firing of muskets should be timed, that they, they, hopefully know when's the perfect moment. It, it, soldiers do not fire until they're commanded to. It, it, we, uh, as, as we've discussed before, uh, early, uh, early discovery in, his, in, in, military, in military psychology, or combat psychology, is that a soldier with a loaded gun, when attacked, even if he doesn't see his assailant, even if his assailant is hundreds of yards away firing at him, will tend to fire back. It's not effectual, and in fact it's a really, really bad habit, but drill allows you to overcome that kind of visceral impulse to shoot back at your tormentor, even if it doesn't make any sense to do so. Um, technology makes a difference here. The advent of the flitlock musket, you may remember this this, uh, this photo here of a uh, of a British so-called Brown Bess uh, first model long land musket from about 1730, uh, typical of, of uh, infantry weapons of the 18th century. Um, flitlock muskets as we've seen more reliable than the matchlock, uh, higher rate of fire, slightly more weather resistant than a matchlock, and the possibility of true volley fire. Now Volley fire, as we've, as, as we've seen, is, uh, is, an important, is an important component of early modern warfare. Um, not because, as some historians have alleged, that somehow firing muskets all at once compensates for inaccuracy. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense, right? I mean, fire, just timing of, what, of, of, uh, of firing does not make the bullets more accurate. Volley fire is, is important because it is an important psychological weapon, right? To have an entire rank of the enemy drop at once, to see a rank melted into the ground as was said of the Swiss at, at uh, La Bicoca in 1522, is a huge blow to the morale of those who are, who are standing nearby to watch it. Uh, much more so than seeing a man drop here or there in a kind of desultory, sporadic fashion. So volley fire is possible with a flintlock. They have a well-timed, what we call a crisp volley. Um, the bayonet, introduced in uh, the very end of the 17th century, uh, and taking its modern form by the second quarter of the 18th century. Um, is not exactly replaced the pikeman, but it replaces a pikeman enough. It means that a musketeer has the ability to defend himself in close-up combat and to use uh, musket armed infantry for that offensive push. Uh, that, that previously was done by the Pike. And finally, the paper cartridge, um, which we've looked at relatively recently. The paper cartridge, by putting together powder and ball, uh, pre-measured charge of powder and ball in a paper envelope, instead of pouring powder out of little wooden bottles, right, um, makes not only the transport of ammunition far safer and far less complicated, much better than carrying gunpowder in in large casks, but also leads to a higher rate of fire. It's much faster to load a musket with a paper cartridge than it is with uh, loose powder and ball, even if that powder is already pre-measured. So all those things together make it possible to generate a volume of fire and a rapidity of fire that will allow you to elongate uh, your your infantry formations. So, linear tactics are just kind of a natural evolution, really, of of the developments we see going on in the 16th and 17th centuries. And they proceed from the conviction, which was very well established by the time we get to to 1700, that superior firepower is kinda sorta what wins battles yeah that that's that, that's putting maybe putting a little bit of a um, um, maybe put of a, a, a a a spin out of that, that that looks more like oversimplification but superior firepower might not by itself win battles but inferior firepower almost certainly will lose you a battle um, now where it comes to the order and the pace of battle. So this is, not, you know, we're not, this is not a course about tactics, but tactics are involved here. I won't go into, into too much detail. Um, but linear tactics involve, you know, in typical 18th century battle, uh, both armies deploying from column into line, right? because armies march in columns, right? Well, formations that are very narrow and very deep. This is how you fit on a road, obviously. So to get in a line of battle, you have to shake that column out. That process is called. In the language of minor tactics, deploying. So conversely, the opposite. Going from line to column is called ploying, not a verb we use very often in, in, in modern English. Um, the, uh, they have to deploy, which fortunately, thanks to drill, takes a lot less time than forming a tertio. And you know, forming a tertio takes what, five or six hours. Forming a column into line, even in a reasonably large force, say 30, 40,000 men, you know, might take the course of an hour. Um, but you have to get into the line of battle to face the enemy. Very often, there are to be an exchange of of artillery, uh, artillery fire, it's something we haven't dealt with very much because we're dealing primarily with small arms, but most armies by the middle of the 18th century have significant field artillery. It's still not quite there in terms of its killing potential. Remember, artillery is going to become the chief harvester of lives in the First World War by a large margin. Far more so than machine gun fire, or small arms fire in general, and way, way more than things like poison gas. Um, But at this point in the 18th century, artillery is, it's useful, but you can almost do without it, almost. So usually there's an exchange of artillery fire, either directed towards the enemy's infantry to break up its cohesion from a distance, or counter-battery fire designed to silence the enemy's batteries. And ultimately, the opposing infantry, infantry formations, once they've shaken out into line, um, move, uh, uh, move closer to one another, begin to exchange volleys. How far apart they begin to exchange volleys? Well, most tactical manuals recommended about a hundred yards. In practice, soldiers tended to engage at around 200, where the volley fire is not especially effective. But that, we call that, you know, that tactical sweet spot between a hundred yards and eighty yards, where muskets were truly effective. Uh, where they first became truly effective. That's usually about the distance that armies were standing from one another. Now this seems of course ridiculous when we, when we see it uh, especially when we see it portrayed like in, again like in the movie The Patriot, um, that armies just seem to be just standing across from one another and, and standing there while the enemy fires upon them. Um, but again you understand this is partly the nature of the um, um, the, the, the nature of the weaponry, and the nature of the soldiery determine this as well as we'll uh, see shortly. Um, the, um, uh, the, you can see here though why it is that drill and aiming for the highest rate of fire possible is so important. So if you can get more volleys on the enemy than he gets on you, there's a possibility of breaking up his cohesion or the, of making, the, making the enemy weak and unsteady so that you can proceed, therefore, with the inevitable bayonet assault. Okay. So after you've had some trading, trading of musket volleys for, for a while, eventually there'll be an assault with a bayonet. Um, or a cavalry charge. Cavalry, while somewhat de-emphasized in the 18th century, is still kind of important. And, and, uh, and there's fewer things that panic an enemy that has already begun to fray, whose, whose discipline has already begun to show signs of being compromised, than hundreds of men on horses swinging large sabers. Right? Uh, that's, even more, that's even more frightening than infantry moving at you with leveled bayonets. Um, so, but even then, when you have an advance, especially with infantry, they tend to be fairly slow. You know, here's another movie reference, this one's probably beyond, I imagine, most of you. Some of you may remember, or may have heard of, an old uh, flop uh, of, of a movie called Barry Lyndon, which Stanley Kubrick produced, the in 75. Uh, so it's, it's in the range of what my son calls old, old movies now. Um, the, uh, in, in Barry Lyndon, there is a, uh, there's a scene where a British battalion Uh, advances on a French battalion that's blocking a road, this is during the Seven Years War, in the 1750s in other words, and the the British are are marching to the tune of uh, the British Grenadier, Um, but but they seem to do so kind of slowly, at a pace of around, I I timed it once, a pace of around 80 to 85 steps per minute. By the standards of the 18th century, that's fast. Right. Uh, you want to keep it down to about 60 paces a minute because when you start getting too fast, the formation begins to break up. Right? If you go to a dead run, formations just simply fall apart. And it's important in the, uh, uh, in, in the mindset, the tactical mindset of the period, for your troops to hit the enemy line simultaneously. Right? Not just in drips and drabs, but all at the same time. All men with leveled bayonets hitting the enemy simultaneously. Uh, so a slow pace, is kind of necessary. And it, these are the things that make linear warfare look like some kind of polite dance or a ballet, as one, uh, one historian put it, uh, but it's not, and this is one, one lesson I've derived from teaching military history for many years, is that when we see a tactic or a military practice that doesn't seem to make sense to us, it seems silly, it's rarely because it is silly, it's rare, usually because we don't understand the context in which it arises, and uh, usually where it comes to matters like tactics, um, there's a rationale behind them, and if we don't understand that rationale, that's on us as historians, not on the uh, the people who actually practice that. So why linear tactics if we're you know if we're uh, um, if we're looking at uh, uh, these 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 uh, uh, seemingly formal, um, almost choreographed movements. Uh, when we see troops standing within 100 yards of each other just blowing each other's bits with musketry. Why are they doing this? Well, again, the volley fire and the, and the, uh, uh, the massed formations simply proceed from the notion that first of all musketry, musketry does its best damage at 100 yards or less. Actually, it does its best damage, of course, at point blank. Remember point blank being the point, you know, point blank technically when we talk about firearms technology, point blank is the point at which the bullet begins its descent to earth. In other words, where gravity begins to act on the the flight path of the bullet. A point black for a musket, roughly about 25 yards, 50 yards, and maybe tops. Um, This is where the musket is most effective. Um, And if you want to get the fastest result in breaking up enemy cohesion, you want to get as close as possible. Uh, The advantage you will hopefully have over your enemy is that you can load and fa- fire faster, and this becomes almost an obsession with European armies during the course of the 18th century to get to load and fire faster than, than any enemies. Uh, there are a lot of very jealous foreign observers who were you know, who were uh, observing um, uh, Prussian, excuse me, Prussian garrison troops during the reign of Frederick the Great, Frederick II, uh, King of Prussia, and uh, from 1740 to 1786. Um, when they would do their public demonstrations of, of, of drill, they showed that they could actually load and fire five to six, on one occasion, even seven rounds in a minute. Now, that's bordering on ridiculous. It's indeed possible. I've seen a guy fire uh, a, a, a smoothbore mus- musket, flintlock uh, musket five rounds a minute. I know it can be done. Um, but the, uh, in, in combat conditions, when you're being shot at, uh, when you're really, really hot and you're uncomfortable, and you're possibly wounded, you know, five rounds a minute really is not realistic. But nonetheless, European armies strive to be able to get to the highest uh, rate of fire possible. When you elongate an infantry unit, though, when you make it wider and shallower, now I, I, I should have had a diagram up for this, and I meant to. But um, remember, when we when we look at a uh, a formation like a a, a line of infantry. Um, the the uh, lines from, from flank to flank are called ranks, and we look, take a cross-section of the, of the formation from front to back, that's called a file, that's rank and file. So um, in, the, um, um, in the Spanish tercio, we're looking at you know, dozens of ranks, right, those tercios, when you cram 3,000 men into a big square, um, it's going to be very, very deep, and therefore, of course, what we call a target-rich environment bullet, a a musket bullet, musket ball might not go past the first or second rank, but artillery fire could definitely go through the entire formation. Um, But by the time we get to the the, the Dutch army at the time of the Thirty Years' War, uh, ten ranks becomes about the norm for musket. Uh, In the French army at the, um, uh, under the reign of Louis XIV, we're getting down to four ranks. Uh, By the time we get to the American Revolution, infantry tends to fire in formations two or three ranks deep. Now, the, Uh, One of the huge advantages of that is that a thinner formation means somewhat minimized casualties. You can generate more musket fire, but you don't have that depth to absorb uh, projectiles, whether artillery or or, or small arms. Um, So there's definitely that to it. On the other hand, of course, the the flip side of that is a line of infantry doesn't have the physical oomph to it, the the, the physical um, push to it. That a giant block of men packed in shoulder to shoulder and 18 inches from from chest to back um, uh, does, and so it won't have quite the same physical impact when it assaults an enemy, but the thinner lines do in fact minimize casualties. Um, Now one thing we, um, just a little side note here, I want you to understand about 18th century warfare. Uh, We tend to think of it, and this is mostly in light of popular historians writing about World War I or writing about the American Civil War. We tend to think of 18th century warfare as being kind of harmless, I mean, they're trading volleys at short distances, but clearly not that men are being killed. That doesn't happen to the Civil War. Well, actually, no, proportionately speaking, casualties in 18th century battles tend to be higher than casualties in mid-19th century battles. In fact, if we go, depending on how we define a battle, um, casualties, proportionately speaking, in 18th century battles, are roughly similar to those we see in the First World War. The First World War is not bloody because a different topic, not bloody because the weapons are so much more effective. The First World War is bloody because so many people fight in it. But casualty rates of 30, 40, 50, even 60 percent are not unusual in 18th century battles. It's one reason that generals tend to avoid battle when they can. It means they're ar- even victorious, their armies could well be wrecked as a result, and armies are not cheap. So thinner lines, minimizing casualties—that's an important consideration. Close-order formations, not because the commanders are stupid and they somehow think that not spreading out will uh, uh, will, will, will will bring fewer casualties, but the nature of the soldiery. The fact of the matter is, most most 18th century soldiers would rather be somewhere else. If if they've joined an army, it's usually from desperation, whether they're evading the law, whether they're evading hardship or penury at home, uh, whether they're just simply trying to start a new life for themselves, Few soldiers become soldiers because they want to be soldiers in the 18th century. They become soldiers because they're escaping something else. And so desertion is, a hu- is the bane of 18th century armies. Um, and one way of keeping soldiers from running away, especially in battle where there's lots of confusion and there's many opportunities, is to keep them relatively tightly uh, compacted and easy, uh, under, the, under the watchful eyes of their officers. So those compact formations make a difference, plus Again, that military psychology issue here com- comes in here. Uh, the, the, the notion that um, soldiers, as most experienced officers knew, soldiers are far more secure, far happier when they're in close physical proximity to their comrades. Um, one thing one thing we observe in the, for example, in the Battle of Bunker Hill after the first British assault, and you realize the British at uh, Bunker Hill were not veterans, they're they're just as green as the Americans they're fighting, Um, is that some groups of British infantry, under heavy American fire, start bunching together. It doesn't make any sense, it makes them more of a target, but it provides them, you know, with this this visceral need for for security that comes from close proximity to friends and comrades. Um, and, and so linear formations provide that to a certain degree at least um, and you don't have to trust to the individual instincts or motivations of your of your soldiers um, but because formations can change quickly and change direction quickly um, they are able to they are able to, that tactical flexibility means that they can meet oncoming threats uh, and it's drill that allows that to happen Now, to say that there is one kind of linear warfare would be ridiculous. There isn't. There's more than one kind of linear warfare. Um, there certainly are variations on it, as generals and tacticians and professional soldiers, who are incidentally beginning to write more about their experience in, experiences and their ideas, the 18th century witnesses, huge flowering of, uh, of, of military literature, especially a lot of how-to literature, um, to, uh, to gain an advantage over the enemy other than by just sheer exercise of firepower. Uh, Probably most famous, Frederick the Great, you know, the great warrior king of the 18th century, uh, developed uh, relatively early in his reign what he referred to as the oblique order of battle. And all it means is that you try to find a way of getting around the enemy's flanks. You focus on the flanks and not on the center. Um, Now we saw before, when we talked about the tercio a while back, a tercio, a big blocky formation, essentially doesn't have flanks, right? I mean, it has pike and musket on all four sides. It can defend itself even when it's completely surrounded. Lines don't have that, right? And they're very vulnerable on their flanks, especially when it's only two or three ranks deep. If the enemy is to hit, is to hit your, your flank at a right angle, that's it. That's all she wrote, right? Your soldiers will panic the moment they see the enemy bearing down on their flank, unless, You have the forethought and the the, 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 uh, presence of mind to do what's called refusing the flank, something that that drill allows for, where you literally turn the, uh, uh, the, 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 the farthest formation on your flank at a right angle to the rest of the line. You drop them back almost, swing them almost like a door on hinges, so that the enemy is met not by the side of the army, but by an entirely new battle line. But Frederick the Great, in several several cases, but especially his masterpiece battle, the Battle of Leuthen in Bohemia, in Silesia, in uh, uh, December 1757, uh, that his little and exhausted army that had just marched back from the western part of the Holy Roman Empire, having defeated a French army, uh, moves rapidly east and encounters a large Austrian slash Holy Roman Empire army, uh, nearly three times its size. Um, Frederick's army about 36,000, the Imperial army well over 100,000. And Frederick wins, and he wins by making the Austrians think he's attacking in their center. But at the same time, he's moving the bulk of his force by taking advantage of uh, hilly terrain off to the Austrian left. And then when the Austrians shift their forces to, to reinforce their center, his main force comes crashing down on the Austrian left and sends the army fleeing uh, losing practically all their cannon and all their standards, you know, within, within, a, matter of, within a matter of minutes. Um, and this is the kind of thing that caught the attention of, of other soldiers. The so-called turning movement, which is another word for an oblique order of battle, becomes all the rage. Um, we see this in battles in the American Revolution. Bunker Hill. You know, the reason the, the British were so badly mauled at Bunker Hill is because their first attempt at attacking the American line was in fact meant to be a turning movement, but the Americans managed to shore up their line just in the nick of time uh, to repel the, uh, the initial British attack. Um, and, the, and the French army, again, you know, I made this point before, we oftentimes forget that France is, well into the 20th century, the center of military innovation, the center of innovation in military technology. More than the United States, more than Germany, more than Prussia, uh, it's France. Um, And in France, we see this really intense tactical debate following their losses in the War of the Spanish Succession early in the 18th century, where they begin to talk about, maybe we should do something more than just form up into small lines, trade musketry, and attack and and, and launch bayonet assaults. Maybe we should, by the way, that was referred to as the order mass, the the, the, uh, thin order. Maybe we should use uh, attack columns. Maybe we should go back to, the thoughts of the, of the 17th century. Maybe we should even bring back the pike. This is called the deep order, ordre profonde. Um, and there are others who are saying, why don't we mix the two? Why don't we use line when we're firing our muskets, why don't we go into column when we're assaulting, the so-called mixed order. Um, so it's not as if linear tactics is one thing or that it never evolves, it does. There's another aspect that's directly applicable uh, to the, the American Revolution. And that is the adaptation of 18th century warfare to or unconventional settings. It's very much a part, as we'll see when we, you know, we'll talk about this just a little bit more as we move on towards the rifle, that the, um, the British were kind of clueless when it came to fighting a war in the wilderness. Right? Uh, and usually the uh, example that's given is Braddock's defeat, um, where Edward Braddock's column attempting to uh, um, Attempting to uh, relieve or attempting to reach, rather, what would today would be Pittsburgh, uh, is, uh, is ambushed by French and Native American uh, uh, forces uh, at the so-called Forks of the Monongahela, uh, resulting in a you know utter massacre that uh, in which a number of American officers, including George Washington, you know, are, are present for. Um, this is taken as an example of the British being clueless. That is the exception rather than the rule, and mostly because Braddock was just lazy and didn't bother to follow some really basic security protocols, like keeping flankers, you know, soldiers paralleling the line of march and flushing the woods to make sure there's no enemies lurking about. Um, Braddock's defeat is a result not of British cluelessness, but of one general's carelessness. Um, In general, um, the British do a great deal about wilderness warfare, and part the, partly that was a general european trend in the um, uh, in the uh uh, in the 18th century. Europeans were fighting against unconventional opponents more than ever during the 18th century. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, what else is Europe doing a lot in the 18th century? It's building empires, right? It's, it's, it's moving into, it's, it's become, they're becoming colonial powers, and especially for France, Britain, Spain, a little bit less so for, for the Dutch obviously, um, they're having to learn to fight against enemies that don't necessarily use European weapons and tactics. As we know from David Silverman's book from Thunder of course the uh, um, um, Native Americans in North America definitely acquired a large number of European firearms and the Europeans were complicit in providing them, obviously, so they have European weapons, but they don't necessarily fight like Europeans. Um, so this, and, and the British also, for example, are, are facing the, uh, um, are facing uh, uh, the, the, the rebels in Scotland, in particular the 45 uprising. Um, so the uh, uh, European armies are having to adapt to different circumstances, different enemies, um, and, and hence we have what some historians have called the, the light infantry revolution, uh, where they begin to train soldiers specifically to carry out these unusual tasks. Light infantry, called light infantry, first of all, because they were more lightly armed, or more lightly equipped. Um, that uh, usually carries smaller muskets, maybe a, tom- uh, maybe a hatchet or a tomahawk instead of a bayonet uh, or in addition to a bayonet. Um, clothing that's a little bit more practical for use in, for example, in secondary growth where it's not going to snag so much on thorns, etc. Uh, also for light infantry you want men who are athletic, who are um, small and agile, uh, and 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 hopefully more intelligent than the average infantryman because they'll be called upon to do more more things on their own uh, of you know, their um, on their own initiative. Um, so by the middle of the 18th century, most European armies have these special forces, have light infantry. In the British Army, by the time of the American Revolution, every infantry battalion of five companies has one company of light infantry. Uh, and in special circumstances, those light infantry companies can be disconnected. From their battalions and, and put together to form light infantry battalions, um, but almost every European army has light infantry trained to fight as regular infantry. They can fight in line also, but also trained to go off on their own to skirmish, to operate in small groups under minimal supervision, which is why you want really trustworthy soldiers, obviously, to do this to take cover, uh, to perhaps practice more than wave marksmanship than ordinary soldiers would. So the British experience is probably the most intensive, we we oftentimes forget that although the British are not the ones who really start the Light Infantry Infantry Revolution, I would say that's primarily the French and the Austrians actually, Um, but uh, they're certainly the ones who have perfected it the most by the time of the American Revolution, because the British are fighting a lot of unconventional enemies in Scotland, in the Scottish Highlands, and in in North America. The early colonial wars in North America, for example, those fought around Massachusetts Bay Colony and Connecticut, uh, and and those fought around the the Jamestown settlement in the growing Virginia uh, Colony, um, yes, are done primarily by the colonists themselves. But by the 18th century, that has changed dramatically. And it's primarily British conventional forces that are in North America fighting against the French and fighting against the uh, the, the Native American allies of the French. So there's lots of experience. Um, the, the, the British are eager for that experience. These are not, these are, this is not an army that is ignorant of wilderness warfare, in short. Um, they've, uh, uh, in, in some cases, for example, uh, the, the British have deliberately sought out co- opportunities for collaboration with uh, colonists who have a lot of experience. Uh, fighting against Native Americans. Probably the most famous example, we remember Roger's Rangers, uh, which was a provincial unit raised during the Seven Years' War, we call the French and Indian War in the United States, um, which was, again, made up of uh, primarily frontiersmen uh, from the the British colonies in North America, but the British were actually um, uh, allowing British infantry officers to serve in Roger's Rangers as non-commissioned officers and as privates, as enlisted men, just so they could learn the techniques of, 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 of wilderness warfare. Um, so the, the British had, were, were past masters of this, and the, and the men who would lead the British army in the revolution, here I'm looking primarily at Sir William Howe, uh, who will become the, you know, the main British commander in North America, from the end of 1775 until, uh, uh, well, until Clinton takes over a few years later. Um, And then Thomas Gage, the British commander in Boston when the revolution begins, were both thoroughly familiar with with American warfare. They even liked Americans. I mean, Gage was married to an American woman. Um, But uh, both Howe and Gage were, well, Gage Gage was present at Braddock's defeat. Uh, Gage, in fact, got permission to raise a full regiment of light infantry, um, and William Howe wrote extensively on irregular warfare and in fact conducted regular light infantry exercises on Salisbury Plain in England uh, in, the, in the early 1770s. I mean these are these men are at the, the, the top of their craft, so Britain is not unprepared to fight a wilderness war. The, really the, the long and short of it so. Why then do we tend to think that they're not? And, and, and uh, what is, how do we compare American forces to the British uh, during, the, during the course of the, of the American War for Independence? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. First of all, let you me know, reiterate this is, this is really the popular perception, because of American national mythology, that has come down to us about American military capabilities in, in 1775. Um, The notion that uh, colonists were well-suited to war because Americans were, by their nature, inherently superior soldiers. Um, That Americans were familiar with firearms more than Europeans were. Um, That uh, gun ownership was common, and that guns were commonly used because they're necessary tools in frontier life. You need them. To hunt, and you need them uh, to, uh, to fight off hostile Native Americans. Right? Um, that Americans had extensive experience in combat, in particular during the Seven Years' War, again, the French and Indian War. Uh, and that experience, either direct or, or vicarious, translates into American martial know how in 1775. Um, that most some of the colonies had viable militia systems, by far the best example being Massachusetts, uh, which had about a, a reasonably well-prepared militia system by 1774, um, and that Americans had their own weapon, namely the rifle. Um, and while we know, of course, that the musket is by far the most common weapon used by Americans during the Revolution, uh, still this notion persisted for a long time that the rifle, um, you know, that, that with, uh, without getting into too much detail, I mean, we've gone over rifling a lot, that has grooves cut into the bore, into the interior of the barrel, uh, so that when a projectile engages with the rifling, the rifling imparts a spin when the, when the weapon is discharged. And that spin gives the projectile greater accuracy, greater range, and greater hitting power. The downside, of course, being that having to engage the rifling means that there has to be a lot of friction between bullet and bore, which makes loading from the muzzle very very difficult, very very laborious, especially after you fire fired the weapon for a while. But nonetheless, Americans preferred the rifle, that's the notion at least, and they're reasonably skilled in its use. The reality is, is a bit different. Firearms were in fact common in colonial, uh, colonial America, but they weren't used a lot. Um, and it's part, partly because it, kind of skipping down to the third point here, not that many Americans live on the frontier. There really aren't that many frontiersmen in colonial North America in 1775. You certainly can't call that mass of, of humanity that descends on Boston after the battles of Lexington and Concord and forms kind of a, a, you know, a, a semblance of an army. You can't call them frontiersmen. They're farmers, or are school teachers, they shopkeepers, they're, you know, they're, they're anything but frontiersmen, um, few of them have seen a Native American in their entire lives, much less a hostile one, right? um, And if there's a gun around the house, it's either the one that Grandpa brought home from the Siege of Louisbourg in 1744, or it's the one you keep around the house to put down a mad dog or a wounded horse, right? Yeah, farmers need guns very often, right? But you don't use it to fight against... Native Americans, because that just isn't happening except on the actual frontier. You know, so when it comes to Massachusetts, if you're familiar with Massachusetts at all, frontiersmen come from the Berkshires, right? They come from the mountains. They don't come from Boston or Shrewsbury or even Springfield, they come from the far west. Um, So most Americans have very little experience with firearms. When I wrote my book on Bunker Hill, one thing I kept running into was was American soldiers with guns for the first time, guns and ammunition. And they're shooting them off at night when they get drunk. And they're trying to start their cooking fires by using the matchlock, the flintlock mechanisms, usually with bad results. And the far, by far the largest number of men admitted to hospitals in the American army in 1775, after those who were there for you know, mostly epidemic disease, especially smallpox, were victims of gunshot wounds inflicted by themselves and right. not suicide attempts. These are just accidental discharges. Americans had no idea what they were doing with weapons most of the time for most of settled America. Um, those on a frontier, that's a different issue altogether, of course. Militia um, system really only exists on paper. Uh, and only a very small proportion, like for example in Massachusetts, the so called Minutemen, had any kind of significant training. And even then, their training is primarily in marksmanship but even mostly uh, but mostly on what we call minor tactics they're doing drill and practicing right left right face left face etc um uh, marching and uh, changing from column to line but they're practicing it in groups of 20 or less and it doesn't take a big stretch of the imagination to understand why it is that maneuvering with a group of 20 people is somehow a completely different thing than maneuvering with a battalion of 500 men or an army of 20,000 men, right? Um, they don't have any experience with large unit tactics. Um, rifles are not common at all, except on the frontier. And when, when for example, uh, the army outside Boston in 1775 seized the very first co- uh, continental riflemen, it was when, the, when, the, when Congress authorized the creation of the Continental Army in June of 1775, the very first thing they called for was a regiment of riflemen from Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Um, And they finally show up in the fall of 1775 and the other soldiers are amazed to see that a man can shoot um, a um, a target the size of a book and hit it repeatedly at 250 yards. It is pretty remarkable, Um, but again something that's unfamiliar to the vast majority of Americans. And as a result it will play a very limited role in the Revolution. Now um, I don't want to dwell on this point too much, but uh, the, the main thing we have to understand about the rifle is that in some ways, yes, is an advanced technology over the musket simply by virtue of the fact that the rifle has rifling and therefore gives a sp- imparts a spin to the, p- to the projectile, to the bullet. Where a musket having a smooth barrel, a smooth bore, right, um, does not have that same degree of accuracy, particularly because musket balls were intentionally made somewhat smaller than the inside of the barrel, somewhat smaller than the bore, to allow for the fouling, the hard carbon de- uh, debris, that the deposits rather, that would build up on the inside of the barrel and cons- effectively constrict the barrel of the musket. If you want to keep up a high rate of fire, you have to have the musket ball a good tenth of an inch, yeah, off, at least between uh, uh, five hundredths and, uh, uh, and, and one tenth of an inch um, uh, difference between the, between the ball diameter and the, uh, um, And the uh, the, the bore diameter. Um, So that's what makes the rifle more advanced, and of course as a result, much greater range. You know, musket really is effective up to 100, 150 yards maybe, again a man has to be very unlucky to be killed by a musket or even hit by a musket at 200 yards. Um, uh, Rifles are theoretically capable of of, uh, killing people at 400, 500 yards at this point at least, Um, but big difference obviously. Um, hitting power is greater, uh, range is greater, but the lower rate of fire makes a huge difference. Uh, at, at best, we're looking at one round a minute. So at best, a third of the rate of fire. And again, remember, this is the, what European tacticians are looking for. Their priority is rate of fire. Rate of fire, is, has been demonstrated again and again and again, always trumps accuracy when it comes to the effectiveness of weapons. in in a military context. Um, So uh, that lower rate of fire makes a, makes a huge difference. Not only that, to be accurate with a rifle takes time. It's just like with the English longbow. It takes a lifetime to build up a skilled rifleman. When your sights are fairly primitive, basically a, a, a V rear sight and a post front sight, to be able to compensate for differences between powder loads um, between ball weights, between uh, like, that compensate for, for wind direction and velocity. This takes years of experience to learn how to hit a target at a long range. So in other words, for the average person, a rifle is no more effective than a musket. Um, in fact, it's less effective. Um, they're still finding a place in irregular warfare, the Germans in particular. Again, I realize Germany is not a place it's a ge- geographical expression in the, uh, in the 18th century. but. Various of the German uh, German uh, German states, Prussia, for example, Hesse-Kassel, you know, the, the, where we get Hessians from, uh, were experimenting with arming their light infantry with rifles and recruiting their light infantry from prof- uh, mostly from professional professional huntsmen, the people who act effectively as game managers uh, for um, uh, for aristocratic landowners. Uh, who had experience, in other words, with a rifle. And, and hence, uh, we see the, 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 uh, the term usually used for light infantry in, uh, in German armies of the 18th century is Jägern, in the plural, or Feldjäger, hunters, in other words. Now, in America, there was, I mean, admittedly, there was more of a tradition of building rifles than there was in Europe. Uh, that's, I mean, that part is pretty much indisputed. But we know from all sorts of in all sorts of ways, the vast majority of weapons built by American gunsmiths, imported by American um, um, uh, uh, American uh, importers, uh, used by American families were smoothbores. The vast majority of weapons in civilian hands were either Fowler's, essentially single barrel shotguns. I mean, there's a design primarily for hunting birds, which means it'd be effectively ducks and geese for the most part, uh, and small game like rabbits. Right? Um, they are, uh, they're, and for that they're, they're perfectly effective. Or actual muskets, usually older ones, usually uh, muskets that have been captured uh, during one of the many colonial wars. As a way we see a fair number of antiquated French muskets in the hands of uh, colonial New Englanders, for example. And a weirdly large number of Spanish muskets uh, conduct, uh, they were captured during the kind of ill-advised uh, British slash colonial expedition against Tavana in the 1760s. Um, so, most weapons in America are the vast majority are smoothbores. On the frontier, in the in the foothills of the Appalachians, that's where you see rifles uh, because you know rifles make some sense. They they make sense certainly for hunting uh, and and for hunting at the kind of uh, kind of ranges that were. Uh, um, uh, that were often, oftentimes, you know, com- commonly encountered in, in, in hunting in, in the uh, uh, what was then, what was then, the western frontier. Um, there's, there's different, different regional styles. I mean, maybe you may have heard of a Kentucky rifle, for example. The term Kentucky rifle isn't used so much by arms historians and arms experts anymore, um, because most, most of the so-called Kentucky rifles follow the basic regional designs that come from Pennsylvania and, and New England. Uh, but we see distinctive Pennsylvania, New England styles, the, the, the rifle here in the, in the photograph, even though it's post-Revolution, is pretty typical for a, uh, for a, for a um, Pennsylvania-made rifle of the, uh, of the Revolutionary War period. Uh, some of the rifles coming out of Virginia and Maryland. Um, but despite their aesthetic differences, there's some common features that pretty much set them apart from muskets and, and make them identifiable as a class. First of all, very long barrels. And again, the notion being a longer barrel means greater accuracy, more effective use of, of the propellant. In other words, more of the black powder is burned up inside the barrel instead of being wasted in the big muzzle flash. Um, they're fully stocked. And you can see, if you take a really close look at this rifle here, you can see there's a, there's a brass ferrule at the end, but the stock goes all the way up to the muzzle. Um, there's no provision for a bayonet because this is not thought of as a military weapon. Um, and a, a bayonet would throw off the, the accuracy of the weapon anyway. Smaller calibers, that was common in, uh, with muskets. They're common at the time. You know, uh, French muskets, generally 69 to 70 caliber. British muskets, nominally 75 caliber. Um, in other words, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of an inch. Uh, rifles tended to be 50 caliber or below, which at the time was considered very small. We see some rifles coming out of Pennsylvania with calibers as low as 36. Uh, which is considered tiny at the time, that's a, that's a squirrel rifle, right, it's not something you use seriously in war. Um, also very, again, very primitive sights. I mean it does not allow for windage, they do not allow for, um, uh, for for range, it's just a V in the rear and a post in the front. Uh, and how you adapt to range and climate and, you know, and, and wind and wind direction, that's entirely up to you as a rifleman. That's why um, the rifle like the longbow, requires again a lifetime or something like a lifetime of training. Now we see rifles in the Continental Army um, nearly from the very beginning, in fact actually from the very beginning. Uh, While there weren't any rifle um, um, rifle units in the American army outside Boston in 1775, um, the um, uh, uh, Congress um, partly because they had heard tales, John Adams in particular, John Adams was completely wowed by the performance of frontier riflemen. In fact, by the riflemen themselves, he looked upon them as like almost a different species of human being. Um, they uh, they, they dressed differently and is a fairly common depiction of a, uh, of, of a Western rifleman. Again, Western being Western Pennsylvania, Western Massachusetts, Western Maryland, we're not talking about you know, anything really beyond the Alleghenies and the Appalachians. Um, but that they, uh, they had elements of Native American dress. Um, and they didn't take the uniforms, and throughout the, you know, throughout the Revolution, uh, much like many, many soldiers of the Continental Army, they tended to prefer the so-called linen hunting frock, like the one this man is wearing, rather than actual uniforms. Um, but the Continental Army creates uh, uh, initially two rifle regiments to join the, uh, I'm sorry, Continental Congress creates two rifle regiments to join the Continental Army outside of Boston. Um, and there they, they wow uh, other soldiers with their feats of marksmanship, and they annoy the hell out of their officers uh, by being unwilling to follow orders. Uh, one reason that Washington, George Washington himself came to detest the rifle regiments is that the men did not show due deference to officers and no inclination at all to submit themselves to military discipline. Um, but that, that, very, that very maverick nature is one reason that we we tend to think of the rifleman as being uniquely American. Okay, this, this is the American spirit distilled into a single, kind of, uh, a single kind of fighter rather than a soldier. But the rifle regiments don't prove to be as useful as we'd like to think they were. Um, we know at some points in, at some points in the war they um, uh, they provide a critical service. Daniel Morgan from Virginia, who is uh, commander of one of the first rifle regiments, um, becomes you know, one, of the, one of the heroes of the war, uh, in large part because of the um, because of the, not just the feats of marksmanship of his men, but the critical role that the riflemen played, for example, in the battles around Saratoga. There's not a, there's, no, there's no single battle of Saratoga. There's two battles. Um, in particular, the Battle of Bemis Heights, which is the the second of the uh, uh, the Saratoga battles. Um, in fact, there is a legend that has, and I emphasize, legend that has emerged around Morgan's riflemen at. Uh, um, at Saratoga, and if you Google this you can see all the details about the legend. Um, a, an Irish immigrant named Timothy Murphy allegedly was asked by Morgan to take out uh, the, the British General Simon Fraser uh, who Morgan deemed had just simply was too vital to the British to be allowed to let, to let uh, live. Uh, and Murphy uh, fired at him, depending upon which source you read, somewhere between 70 yards and 450 yards. That's a pretty Pretty big difference between the two, obviously, uh, and that he took Fraser out with one shot. Um, there's all sorts of problems with this guy, a uh, historian named Hugh Harrington, in fact, kind of took the legend apart and found out there's not even a mention of this happening until, what, the 1820s, uh, that uh, this seems to creep into, um, uh, creep into American legend, um, but there's no proof this actually happened. We know Simon Fraser is killed, do we know, we know there was a Timothy Murphy in Morgan's Rifle Regiment, but do we know Murphy killed him? Well, we really don't. In fact, there's uh, Al Nofi, who's an old, uh, old, old hand in the military history community, uh, once pointed out, you notice every time in American military history where a general gets killed, we say a sniper did it. We usually don't know that a sniper did it, but we just assume a oh, general got killed, must have been a sniper. Um, and it's true, I mean, this is, uh, you see this with the Civil War, you see this with the Revolution, we just kind of make the assumption um, that even if a general has people dying all around him and musket balls are thick in the air, if he gets killed, it was a sniper. Uh, and it, there's kind of a peculiar American obsession, I think, with sharpshooters and snipers. Um, um, Alexander Burns, who is a very young, young scholar who's been working with the history of the Prussian Army lately, is working right now on a, uh, uh, a, a book on... Um, um, on uh, the Continental Army, and has pointed out uh, that uh, uh, that we really don't have many documented cases of, of snipers taking out officers. In fact, he had one one anti-case um, of a uh, of a uh, British a British colonel named James Webster uh, during the Battle of Wetzel's Mill in uh, North Carolina in March of 1781, uh, where 25 riflemen made a point of trying to, to shoot down this colonel, not a very long range either. Um, fired a total of 32 shots between them and not a single bullet hit the colonel. Um, that's a pretty good indication of how rifles are not a magical solution to anything. Um, but overall, the judgment was, especially in the minds of people like George Washington, um, that rifles slow rate of fire made riflemen vulnerable to attack and therefore inferior to musket. So and again, it comes down to the rifle in 18th century warfare, is no deadlier than a musket in almost all combat situations. So the... Because of this, Washington, who doesn't get probably the credit he deserves as a tactician, at least as a military uh, organizer, uh, understood that rifles really were kind of a waste of resources, um, that they had their utility, uh, but it was very limited and continuously throughout the war, the proportion of riflemen in the Continental Army is actually pared back and diminished. And Washington's emphasis was not on rifles, it was on muskets. Washington understood, and this is, again, one of the more important things about Washington's generalship. Uh, Washington believed, I guess I should say, that it was important that the Americans develop a European-style army. Um, That uh, Americans would never get any respect, even if they win their independence, they would never get any respect unless they had an army that was capable of going toe-to-toe with the British, fighting the way the British did. And so, hence, uh, Washington's aim throughout the war was to make the Continental Army a European-style army that used European weapons to fight in European fight, using European fighting methods, um, in other words, to fight the way the British did, just to be better at it. And to that end, it's not technology that makes a difference, right? It's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, It's discipline. It's not uh, the frontiersman who's going to make a difference. It's the ordinary grunt with a, with a Brown Bess or a French Charleville um, who is uh, being uh, drilled every day, eight hours a day, with, uh, with uh, uh, the Baron de Steuben's Blue Book uh, to, uh, to, to, to learn, you know, his, uh, learn the, the evolutions of the line and, and maybe occasionally get some marksmanship practice. Um, the uh, what's often referred to as the Reformation of the Continental Army, because although For the very beginning, the Continental Army is indeed practicing drill, there's no system. Uh, The reformation of the army, which begins with the encampment at Valley Forge in the winter of um, 1777-78, puts a great deal of emphasis on this kind of training, again, on conventional training. And that's where, you know, the person we oftentimes incorrectly call the Baron von Steuben, but rather the Baron de Steuben, Comes in after his after he might, after he uh, comes to the United comes to the new United States uh, from France in the uh, fall of 1777. The implementation of a standardized drill simplified somewhat to eliminate many of the frills that existed in British drill uh, and to emphasize rate of fire again over over accuracy. And Washington himself took a direct interest in uh, in musketry, uh, frequently giving the instruction that. Uh, Volleys were not to be exchanged farther than 100 yards, even if the British fired. In fact, Washington recommended that when the British attack, that we wait until 25 yards. That's asking a lot out of a soldier. Um, 25 yards before the first volley. His idea being at 25 yards, a volley is going to be so massively devastating that the British will be staggered. If not completely thrown back or even even eliminated. We know the Continental Army did not hold to that, in fact Alexander Burns has pointed that out, uh, that that we see a lot of engagements where the soldiers do not obey those instructions, but again it gives you an idea of of what factors uh, account for American tactical success, Um, not only in Washington's mind but in reality, and where it comes to infantry combat that's the musket and not the American rifle. Um, so you know, what do we derive from this? Well, that um, Washington, to a certain extent, is, is proving correct, right? And, and his adherents, like Steuben or like Henry Knox, are the ones who insisted on having a European-style army rather than a um, rather than a, a ill-organized bunch of partisans who fought a uh, uh, fought a guerrilla war, which was what General Charles Lee wanted. Um, and by 1779, 1780. That reformation program had definitely paid off. England, British and French observers, especially the French, glowed about the performance of, of American infantry in combat and in, uh, in drill demonstrations. Uh, the French repeatedly saying that uh, Americans actually seemed to be as tight at drill as the Prussians were, which was a hell of a compliment, obviously, in the 1770s, uh, 1780s. That's not to say the rifle doesn't have a legacy. Obviously it has a kind of a mythological legacy, right? This is um, uh, where it comes to not only American national mythology, but also we might call the, you know, the lore behind um, um, uh, arguments in favor of the Second Amendment. I mean the the rifle, the the long rifle is very much a part of American firearms identity, if you will. Um, But there's also some recognition that rifles can occasionally accomplish things, and so it's not that the rifle is discarded after the war. In fact, the British take a greater interest in the rifle after the revolution. So by the time of the wars with Napoleon, at the end of the 18th century, the British have actually developed a regular rifle corps including probably most famously the 95th foot, uh, the, the uh, uh, rifle regiment that is you know, made famous of course through the uh, you know, the BBC series Sharpe's Rifles. Um, but the British had derived that from their experience in the American Revolution. The understanding that This is an auxiliary weapon, it's a specialist weapon for specialists, but it is not, uh, but it is not necessarily, you know, universally applicable. Um, But uh, perhaps the greatest legacy of the rifle has to do with the, the, the survival of the technology, because this is going to be the greatest technological challenge and the greatest technological priority of weapons designers and gunsmiths as we go into the 19th century. Is how do we harness the accuracy, and the range, and the power of the rifle, and make it load and fire as fast as a musket? Uh, that's going to be the principal thing driving firearms innovation really for the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and as we'll see while there are some immediate answers, immediate solutions to that question, uh, that very, that very uh, priority is going to have monumental effects, not just on firearms technology, but as we'll see on, on, on the nature of warfare, the nature of organized violence in general. So, um, well, um, I, I think I'll conclude with that. Do we have any, any questions? Yes. Um, in regards to like rifle technology in the United States versus like muskets um, in, the seven, in the 1770s, Washington preferred muskets over rifles are, is american industry building muskets or are they strictly importing and focusing more on rifles during during the course of the revolution okay Um, they are producing almost entirely muskets and these are so-called committee of safety muskets that are mostly commissioned by by the individual states Um, uh, there are a few rifles being made specifically for army use but they're very very few uh, the, uh, you know among other things, really muskets are a lot cheaper to build than rifles. Uh, just the, the, the process of rifling until we get to the 1830s or so is laborious and time consuming and therefore expensive so yeah the, uh, and of course importation is going to be the major source. This is why we see you know by the end of the revolution, the army almost entirely armed with French muskets Yes, with the uh, uh, differences between like uh, rifles and muskets and the different people making them, were, were there any sort of manufacturers that stood out amongst the other ones that were clearly better, or were they all really just the same? It's hard to say because most of the firearms manufacturers that are active during the revolution aren't active a generation later. Um, as shortly after the revolution, and we start to see, for example, Eli Whitney, You know, of course, is a you know, giant in American industrialism, start out as a gun maker or uh, um, and think of other, other names, Star, for example, um, uh, Simeon North. There's a bunch, of, they all start up right after the revolution. Um, but there's no, there are definitely makers who are, who are more productive than others. They realize a lot of these muskets are made essentially at small-scale small shops, you know, basically blacksmiths' concerns. There's no real factories. Um, but a uh, but few that stand out, for example, so-called Rappahannock Forge, in, in Virginia, actually, turned out a fair number of muskets, uh, but and pistols and wall guns too. Uh, but by and large, now there there uh, there really isn't a, a an obvious arms making elite that's coming out of the revolution. Yeah. Yes. So a rifle would be loaded in the same way as a musket. It's just it's just harder to do. Yeah, just... so, so, so muzzle load is still powder and ball. It usually the difference would be with a rifle, of course. Because you have to have some kind of lubrication to get the ball down the barrel, right? I mean, otherwise it's just lead on steel, which would be almost impossible to do. Uh, that it was common for riflemen to use a greased, very thin leather patch that had been soaked in, in some kind of animal fat. Um, that would um, um, serve several purposes. The main one is to ease the, the bullet down the bore. But outside of that, it's exactly the same process. And, of course, that added friction is what makes all the difference, what makes uh, you know, less than one round a minute rate right of fire, and that's again under best of circumstances. Anyone uh, Yeah. Also, uh, you said with the uh, frontiersmen didn't really play, play that big of a role because they didn't uh, follow orders. Would, were they just sort of left as special units or just put to the wayside while oh. the, they're still used, and you know the rifle regiments still exist, um, and they're not. It's not so much that they. It's not just because they, they won't submit to discipline. Um, it's it's partly because the again the, the allocation of resources is not exactly ideal. I mean the riflemen just don't really have a, don't really have a lot to do. Um, that, that can't be accomplished by, by regular infantry. But they exist throughout the war. And, and, and you also see riflemen in an irregular basis throughout the war, especially in the southern theater. I think in the Carolinas, for example, where you have a lot of local units, including militia, and uh, for example, the so-called over-the-mountain men, you know, who uh, uh, are proficient with the rifle. Um, but in terms of organized uh, revolutionary forces, in other words, the Continental Army, that definitely the numbers are significantly shrunken. Okay, well, I guess that's it. Well, thank you for attending. Check out American History TV either on our website at c-span.org forward slash AHTV or on C-SPAN 2 every weekend from 8 a.m. Saturday through 8 a.m. on Sunday. Explore our nation's past with American History TV.